Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of Blue Note Records. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. On this, the fourth and final episode, The Shape of Jazz to Come, I talk with Don Waz, president of Blue Note Records, about the final two albums from our Blue Note box set series. As you know by now, you'll be receiving Bobby Hutcherson's Montara and Ambrose Akimuser's When the Heart Emerges Glistening. In this episode, we talk about how the vibraphone has gone from a central piece of jazz big band to a semi-novelty and back again, the tumultuous middle years of Blue Note Records, and how signing young artists and letting them develop their own version of jazz remains a central purpose of Blue Note as it hits 80 years old. The vibraphonist Bobby Hutcherson got into jazz via his older brother, who went to school with Dexter Gordon, and who inspired Bobby to take vibraphone seriously. In the mid-60s, he was the go-to player for an array of Blue Note releases. He's the vibraphonist on Out to Lunch, a posthumously released masterpiece by Eric Dolphy, and he played on releases from the likes of McCoy Tyner, Grant Green, Dexter Gordon, and many more. He made a bevy of albums as a band leader, encapsulating a number of styles, and he stayed loyal to Blue Note Records from the beginning of his time as a band leader from the 1960s all the way through his final album, 2014's Enjoy the View. We chose Montara to represent the fusion era on Blue Note for a number of reasons. First, to honor Hutcherson's unsung hero status at Blue Note, where he stayed even after a lot of his contemporaries fled to different labels but also because Montara is an unsung showcase for Hutcherson's flexibility as a player and leader, as the album serves as a sensational survey of Latin jazz. Let's kind of talk about where Blue Note was, was at a label, mm -hmm. um, before we transition into the sort of the 70s era. Sure. Uh, towards the end of the 60s, you know, you start seeing a lot of their like stalwart players started going, you know, Wayne goes and starts mm -hmm. weather report. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are moving to like majors and fusion. Can you kind of just talk about where, like what was, what was Blue Note in the early seventies doing? Well, what happened was that the founders sold the company to uh, Liberty Records and uh, Alfred Lyon, who'd been producing all the records and, you know, going into his pocket and writing checks and doing a really hand-to-mouth. He never got really rich mm -hmm. off the company. Uh, he spent about one year in a corporate structure where he had to go ask permission to make records, and he split. Man, he was done with it. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank Wolf stayed on for a while and took over the company, but he was working within a corporate structure, which... If you're used to owning your own business, is like getting tossed into, you know, an icy <laughs> pool. <Yeah. you> know? <laughs> well, that's particularly when your entire yeah. ethos has been just putting out the stuff you want to hear. You want to hear, and, and then and it's yeah. working. And and if you if you wanted to record Andrew Hill and knew you're going to lose money on it, but you believed in the music, you did it, and you knew you're going to make it back on Jimmy Smith. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of great records were made. And suddenly you're asking 
an accountant to approve what you're doing, and uh, they want to know what the return's going to be. And he said, well, it's going to lose money, but <laughs> but it's, it's great music. We got to put it out there. Mm -hmm. That may not fly. So you can see the, the label change considerably. Uh, uh, and certainly once, uh, once uh, Francis Wolf passed away, uh, it really changed. Right, which happens, he died in 1972. Right. So, um, and around that point, too, part of the uh, the label was sort of focused, like they realized like the reissue part of it mm -hmm. was, you know, that it felt like, feels like Blue Note over the years has had like cycles where like a new generation of people are right. like, right. I need to own every Blue Note record. Mm -hmm. And then Blue Note is like, here, you know, here they are on CD. Because mm -hmm. like there's a generation of kids who are, yeah. There's a guy named Michael Cuscuna who has been a really important uh, player in, in all of this. He's uh, in the 70s, he's a jazz fan. Uh, I don't know if he was producing records. I know he produced a Bonnie Raitt record, and uh, uh, I wish I knew more about his early history. Um, but he just loved all the Blue Note records. The tapes were unmarked in storage somewhere in cardboard boxes. And Michael Cuscuna went through and identified what they all were by listening to them. And it's, it's you know, a thousand albums or something like uh -huh. that. And he, there were there were no notes. Well, actually, there were notes, but he didn't know until after he finished it. Oh, really? Alfred, <laughs> Lyon, Alfred Lyon kept meticulous notes, and he took the notebooks with him. Uh, and Michael didn't know, so he went through. He'd said, "Well, that sounds like Jackie McLean." He called up Jackie McLean. He said, "Did you cut Green Dolphin Street?" Yeah. I did. Well, who who was playing on that session? He pieced it t together that way. Wow. And we'd have no catalog without Michael. Uh, he. And then, of course, he discovered the notebooks and was able to complete it. And he became, you know, they were really grateful to him and he became friendly with them. And uh, he ended up owning the uh, Francis Wolf photographs, which he, he still owns to this day. So mm -hmm. we work hand in hand with him all the time. But I, I know that no one would know how to f even find the catalog. To They wouldn't have been able to make the CDs if Michael hadn't gone through in the 70s and and covered everything. Blue Note got sold to Liberty Records, which got sold to United Artists in 1978. They, they closed it down, and it was really in disrepair at that point. And uh, in the early 80s, I think 84, uh, it got sold again to EMI, mm -hmm. and they approached Bruce Lonval, who'd been the president of Columbia Records, and started a label called uh, Musician for Electra Records about heading up Blue Note. He had the same experience I did, where he, you know, he loved that music. He said that he once showed up at the Blue Note offices and just knocked on the door, and Alfred Lyon answered, and he want, wanted a job <laughs> as a young guy. And uh, he said, "We don't have any employees." <laughs> uh, and Bruce, who was born the same day as me, we shared the same right. birthday, September the thirteenth. He's older than me, but. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he ran the company from 84 until he got ill in the, in the late 2000s, which is when I was brought in. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, 78 is when they sort of, you know, kind of get closed. But in 1975 is where our Bobby Hutcherson mm -hmm. record is from. Yeah. So what made you pick, you know, this is the era we're sort of just calling the 70s. Well, 
the, just across jazz, forget even Blue Note, there was uh, a movement towards a kind of smoother sound, mm-hmm. a little glossier sound, and a lot of great, you know, we got some amazing things. All the, the Mizell brothers made a lot of great records for Blue Note that were, uh, that were even more uh, R&B oriented than, uh, you know, they produced all those great Donald Byrd records. Mm-hmm. And Bobby had made, Bobby Hutcherson had made some of those. But this album, uh, Mandara, Montara, Montara. Montara, I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this album, Montara, um, it's got a glossy sheen to it in a way. But what's going on underneath that is real deep. First, it's a real, it's a real departure for him because it's really kind of a Latin music record. Uh, on the underpinnings are right, and, and he does Oye Como Va and you know Tito Puente and uh, yeah, that feels like yeah. a really cool Easter egg at yes. the end. That suddenly, <laughs> there's this like yeah, the first time yeah. I listened to it, it was like this is like a really good Latin jazz record, and then yeah. suddenly a cover of Oye Como Va comes on. I was like, wait, is this Oye Como? It is Oye Como Va. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But the thing I love about this is uh, that unlike some of the other shiny records that, and I, I, I'm not even focusing on Blue Note, but just the, that was just the trend in jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's something more focused and deep going on here. And if you listen to Bobby's playing, he's playing the same as he played on his record. Actually, the same as he played always. I, I, I produced his last album for Blue Note. And uh, played the same way then. You know, he had he was a harmonically very deep guy, mm-hmm. and a very uh, experimental uh, had a very experimental nature yeah. to his approach to music. Charles Lloyd, who's currently on the label, one of my heroes, uh, he kind of grew up with Bobby in, in L.A. in a certain period of time. Charles from Memphis, but moved to L.A., went to USC. And they spent a lot of time playing together, along, I think, with Eric Dolphy as well. And, uh, you know, they, they'd sit around and, and try to figure out, what did he tell me? He said, the sound that a door makes when it's opening, <laughs> how do you play that? <laughs> you know, dealing with really abstract kind of concepts. Yeah. So Bobby, you know, deep, sophisticated musician, and you can hear that in his playing, even though this is, you could definitely put this on at your party. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so I, I like that. It, it, it's got that 70s thing, but it's continuing uh, the depth and taste and musicality that... Uh, uh, that characterizes the Blue Note catalog. Right. And he, like, you know, in researching him, you know, is considered, like, maybe the most influential marimba and vibraphone player yeah. in jazz, which I think, you know, like, I, I, it's a weird instrument to be, you know, that prolific in jazz. Mm-hmm. And how much of that was just him showing this, you know, different things you could do with yeah. those instruments 
Yeah, no, I mean, he he elevated the game to a whole other level. I mean, you can you can cite some other people, you know, Mel Jackson, right, sure, certainly yeah. influential, who recorded some great stuff for us in the fifties. Uh, was in the modern jazz quartet and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a we just signed a, a young guy named Joel Ross. Really great vibes player, and huh. not just a, a great musician and kind of a leader among. He's young. He's 23 or something like that, uh, but with great leadership capabilities okay. and uh, as well as great musical skills. And he uh, be interesting to talk with him at length about the importance of Bobby Hutcherson. Hmm. Uh, but he Bobby took it into a whole other level, and certainly in, in terms of uh, you know the free jazz thing. I don't, you know, no one had done that before. So mm -hmm. you you can listen to him on. We have an album called Out to Lunch by Eric Dolphy, and his playing on that is mind blowing. And that sort of feels like the vibes feel like a holdover from the like big band era that those were really prevalent in, you know, there's mm -hmm. always that spot in the back for the yeah. guy for the yeah. guy playing yeah. vibraphone. <laughs> and to hear it, you know, like I think out of context, you're like, wow, that's like a really weird, you know, instrument to be that amazing. But mm -hmm. when you follow that thread of like it was somebody recontextualizing this instrument yeah. from that from the bandstand yeah. into you know, all of these strains of jazz. That's exactly right. Yeah. A beautiful guy too, man. I really yeah. loved hanging with him. He was very funny. He had great stories. I'm real soulful cat. He uh, he knew he, he was going at the end, right? Yeah. He, he recorded, I, I went to his funeral up in, uh, just outside of San Francisco, and he recorded an acapella version of himself singing I'll be seeing you <laughs> that they played back it was it was so Bobby you know yeah. it, was, it was really cool beautiful and when was that record when did you record with him uh, I want to say you know five years ago it's kind okay. of a to be honest with you the last eight years are kind of a blur <laughs> could have been eight could have been five uh -huh. been, I don't think it was four uh, I think he, he's been gone three or four years I think mm-hmm um, and this this record too feels like part of a lineage of, you know, great Latin tinged. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Like, why were all of these different? You know, it's a lot of African American jazz players being like very influenced by this like Latin American music. What like symbiosis happened there? That well, well I think it all comes from Africa. You know, all, all that right. rhythm. Uh, uh, so I, I just think it's. I don't know that you break it down by. The region where it became popular—it's it's all of a piece, mm -hmm. and uh, if one part of it appeals to you, the whole thing should really, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I just—I don't—I don't see the separation. It doesn't seem like a remarkable phenomenon that that guys would be. In. Of course, you want to play as a, speaking to you as a musician. Yeah, I mean, you really don't. I never think about the style I'm playing in. I play all kinds of stuff, even within the course. Of a song, I've been playing with Bob Weir from uh -huh. Grateful Dead, right? And sometimes I'll be walking like like I could be playing with Bobby Hutcherson, uh -huh. <laughs> and other times I'm playing in you know like a like a Bootsy Collins lick, mm -hmm. uh, 
but I don't think about it like, no, right, now I'm going to shift up. And this is just all this shit that's in my head, and it just comes out like in, sure. as we're talking here. You know, it'll mm-hmm. come out in the same ten seconds. You, you you go from one thing to the other. I think that's how musicians think. C- categories are great for organizing record stores. If you mm-hmm. can find a record store, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like the Dewey Decimal System. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think any authors ever sat down and said, hmm, I think I'll write a 700 book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Sure. You know, what comes out, comes out. Later yeah. they figure out how to categorize it. So yeah. it's, it's rhythm. It's rhythm. Yeah. And it goes back to the conversation thing that it, we were saying earlier. It, it, was, yeah. it was rhythm was originally mass communication. <laughs> right. It was before telephone conversations. Yeah. The final selection in VMP Anthology, The Story of Blue Note Records, is Ambrose Akamuser's When the Heart Emerges Glistening, his 2011 Blue Note debut. Akamuser, a trumpeter and arranger, is one of the most exciting young artists on the modern Blue Note Records. Recording lush, political, naughty, and rap-inflected albums that tackle tough issues, in addition to showcasing his singular talent. As an arranger and trumpeter, Akinmuser cut his teeth playing with Steve Coleman before he'd play with modern giants like Esperanza Spaulding and V.J. Iyer. He played on the final track of Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, and his work feels like a dialogue with modern hip-hop music. We picked his first Blue Note album because it's another point where jazz is changing, except at this point, we don't know where it's going next. Ambrose has recorded two other albums since, but all of them sound like a shifting tectonic plate, Jazz might be in a completely different place when Ambrose cuts his next record. As we, you know, sort of transition into where is Blue Note today, mm-hmm. uh, can you kind of talk through, they were signing some younger artists in the 80s and the 90s. Sure. Um but when you took the job, like, what was your approach to signing new artists? Like, how important was that to you for, you know, your, your Blue Note? It's really important, and it's, it's still important. Uh, when, you th- when you think about some of our classic albums, most, most of these records here, I'm, I'm just looking at Wayne, Horace, they, they were in their 20s when they made these records. You know, these are young guys. Mm-hmm. And... You want to tap into people at that stage of life. They're the ones who are going to push the boundaries, you know. So my my only thing was I didn't want to come in. You know, I'm a record producer by trade, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I know how to make a record, you know. But I don't want to tell anybody how to make a record. And I don't want to be one of those record company guys who makes you do something you don't want to do to for it to sell a, a few more copies. I've had, as an artist and producer, I've had that happen to me. I, I'll go so far as to say I've been victimized by <laughs> <laughs> bad a and 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 forceful uh, uh, ruination of the of the music. You know, you, you won't. 
I try to find artists who uh, have a vision, have a mm -hmm. sense of, of what they want to accomplish, and know how to go about realizing it. And I try to, I say, I, I'm speaking for the whole company. That's our philosophy. We, we try to make it easy for them to pursue that vision, just remove the obstacles. So just being a, a great saxophone player is probably not enough. Right. You know, that doesn't mean you should be making your own records. Uh, just Maybe you should just be playing on other people's records. It's who's got a vision. And in that sense, Ambrose Akmusiri, is he's the living embodiment of the Blue Note spirit to me. You know, Ambrose is a young guy who, uh, I mean, he's... I don't know what you'd call the era that he comes out of. It's like post bop, post modern, post modern, post bop, or something. Yeah. I don't know. And post hip hop too, in <laughs> yes. a way, right? Yeah, well, he's yeah. certainly influenced by yeah. it. He played on Kendrick Lamar's "To Pimp a Butterfly," and all right? That. Uh, but this is him transitioning from the standard, uh, you know, quintet or quartet, which later became a quartet form, the the standard jazz configuration, into well, I've seen him perform this this album live, and it's you've never seen anything like it in your life. And what I love is that with with the other five records in here, we could see where they led. Mm -hmm. But this brings us right up to the present, yeah. <laughs> and we don't know what he's going to do next. He doesn't know what he's going to do next. He just did this, and uh, and it's the strongest testimony I can offer of the Blue Note tradition being alive and well. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like the perfect way to, to close the box. I, I like what you said about how you approach, uh, like, you know, a and ring the mm -hmm. artist. Because I actually found a Lou Donaldson quote okay. <laughs> uh, where he said that uh, when you used to go to the studio, uh, the thing that Alfred Lyon and Wolf had was that they trusted their artists implicitly. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, to hear you say that, like that's very much, you know, the manifesto. Like yeah. he he said that you never felt like when you went and recorded a studio that anybody anybody's say in what your art was was anybody's but your own. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I think you can intervene on some artist and hijack them and actually have a hit. You know, mm -hmm. you could do that. But where does it leave you in the long run? I had a band. The band was called Was Not Was, and we had an artistic vision. And then this quirky little dinosaur song became a hit. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we did that. I mean, it was just one thing that happened one night. Uh huh. And then all of a sudden, the record companies were like, we need another Walk the Dinosaur. And I don't know how we did the first one. <laughs> and now, as opposed to like pulling stuff up from our soul, we're trying to copy what we did by accident, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it ruined our band. It, it pretty much killed our vision. Mm -hmm. uh, so what good was a hit <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> if it ruins you and, and, and stops the flow in the end? Uh, I've seen it happen all the time, you know, like guys from the record company coming down and giving you terrible advice. I won't embarrass anybody, <laughs> <laughs> but as a producer, it used to happen with uh, a lot with regularity. The biggest mistake that I would see record companies make is they'd love an artist and they'd sign them 
and then try to change them to fit what was popular in that moment. And they'd ruin the artist's career mm -hmm. and the record would stiff and there'd nothing good would come out of it. I think that's a dumb way to run a record company. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, especially when there's so many great artists out there. So that's really one thing. You won't find anyone on Blue Note Records who says that we forced them into... Doing anything, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, even, like, ordering dinner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all, all we try to do is be supportive mm -hmm. and, and let them realize their vision. We're there to help if they need it, but... Uh, uh, I think that I think, as you said, that's that's one of the hallmarks of Blue Note Records. Right. What is next for Blue Note? You know, as you enter the second eighty-year period, you know, what are your what are your plans for Blue Note? And I guess too, like, what are some of the other bigger plans for this year of twenty nineteen? Well, we got a lot of cool stuff coming this year. Uh, a lot of vinyl. Mm -hmm. We're we're launching an audiophile line. That was one thing I found was like when I was remastering for the for the seventy fifth anniversary, we did a, a hundred titles, mm -hmm. and that was when I, I put up Mode for Joe, and I was like, "How do we get this right?" And we worked really hard to master them. They weren't audiophile records because we wanted them to have a low list price. Right. Yeah, and all those like yeah, you can yeah. find them in record stores. Yeah, you find them in record stores. Yeah, it should have been like fifteen to twenty bucks. It's that like, was yeah. it. Yeah, I want, uh, the yeah. list. They, they had to sell for less than twenty bucks. That was that was. Because if you did it by, I, I did the math for 1964, right? <laughs> and that's the I couldn't have spent more than four bucks on records. <laughs> and if I if I saw Blue Note, I, I want a young person who, who sees a cover that looks cool, and I wanted to, I want them to be able to gamble and say this looks like something I want. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Twenty bucks. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so twenty bucks was the four bucks of mm -hmm. 1964. Um, but I kept listening to these records by a company called uh, Music Matters. Sure. Uh, and they're expensive. They're audiophile. They redid the cover. The artwork is beautiful. Everything about it was great. So, uh, so we partnered with one of the guys, uh, Joe Harley, who, who did that. And we're, we're launching our own audiophile line this year. Um, there'll be more vinyl releases. There's a Blue Note G-Shock watch. It's pretty groovy. Oh, man. That's cool. <laughs> There's a Blue Note tour going out later in the year. Uh, I know I'm forgetting stuff. but uh, And, and of course, the, the, this box is a cornerstone of, of the anniversary for us because I think it's, it's a really poetic expression of the history of the label. And to answer your question, I love the fact that it ends with a question mark. Right. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but what I do know is that we're going to keep working with the most visionary artists around and let them go where they want to go. <laughs> Which is, yeah, the blue note, the very blue note ethos at this yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. This ends the first of what we hope 
will be many seasons of the VMP Anthology podcast and the VMP Anthology box set series. Uh, I hope that you guys learned a little bit about the records we sent you over these last couple weeks. And, you know, I wanted to applaud you guys for taking this ride with us. We know that this is an unconventional thing to ask people to sign up for and buy and give their, you know, hard American dollars to. And, you know, you guys did it. You you took this ride. You decided you wanted to break up a box set over six weeks and listen to this podcast and get involved on a Facebook group and uh, do a lot of different things that you wouldn't have done if you just pressed buy on a box set on a website. You know what I mean? Like, uh, hats off to you for being this involved. It, like, makes my job very fun and it makes it a very fun place to work at vinyl me please when we have people who will do this kind of thing we've never attempted anything like this like you know i don't think anybody has to be honest and i hope that this was as fun to listen to as the uh you know attempt was to try to pull off i hope that we see you soon and we get to do this again this year I mean, we have some we have some ideas on a whiteboard. Hopefully, some of them can come off that whiteboard and be a box set on my record shelf as well as yours. This season of VMP Anthology was produced by Gabe Harder with help from Scott Gordon. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. A special thanks to Cameron Schaefer, Matt Fiedler, Amy Maher at VMP for being moral support and giving me some guidance as I prepared for this interview because I have never recorded a podcast like this before in my life. Uh, and thanks to Don Laws for letting me be a goofy jazz fan uh, who got to fire a bunch of questions at you in a recording booth literally four minutes after we met each other. And especially thank you to Blue Note Records because without you making the best jazz albums of all time, we would not be here. Uh, and as always, remember, listen to more jazz. 